How's everyone doing? We're continuing through John's Gospel. John chapter 16 is where we're at. And John chapter 16 really piggybacks on top of a lot of what Jesus said at the end of chapter 15. Remember chapter 15, he talked about being the vine and producing fruit. And that fruit we talked about was really love, that that is the fruit and that is how all men will know that we are his disciples and that we would be in him as he is in the Father and that God would work in us. And at that end, Jesus started warning them that the world was going to hate them because the world hated Jesus. And if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. If you belong to the world, the world would love its own. And he says, remember, I told you that. He gave them the warning. And then he also gave them the promise that the advocate, we talked about the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one who would come alongside, was going to come with them. And we kind of left in chapter fifteen twenty six when the advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And then in chapter 16, it picks up and he says, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And Father, we do pray that as we look at your words tonight, that our hearts again would be open to hear what you would speak to us, Father, that you would give us insight, understanding, and that you would inspire this time, Father, to move within our lives and to help us to be more and more like you. Bless our time here, Lord. May it be fruitful, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jesus starts, he says, I have told you all this so that you will not fall away. Now, other translations might say that you might not be offended, but he talks about falling away. What do you think Jesus means when he says fall away? And what do you think he is referring to? Just as we've read these passages, uh, these par- the pa- paragraph basically. Remember that John is writing this looking back. And so where John is at and where this event took place, there is time in between that John has now lived and seen. 
at this point, there have been a lot of people who have been persecuted, who have been killed, put to death because of their faith as John is writing this. And so John, looking back, has seen countless numbers of Christians who have been put to death. And in that time, we know there are quite a few also who have quit the faith because of this persecution. There are writings by Pliny. There are writings by others in history that talk about Christians who have stopped following Jesus because of this type of persecution. And what Jesus is doing here is telling us that if you're going to come after me, this is the life that it entails. He's warning them about the persecution that was to come so that they wouldn't be caught by surprise. So that when it came, he would say, I told you that this was going to come. I'm warning you about this so that when it happens, you won't think you didn't tell us about this. And so he was warning them so that they wouldn't fall away when the persecution came, although some did. And by falling away, it means basically that they have left the faith, that this faith was not important enough for them to give their life to it. And it's important to understand that because here Jesus is about to give his life for us. And what he is asking is that we give our lives for him. It's like, okay, Lord, I'll follow you. I'll go to church. I'll I'll go to prayer meetings. I'll I'll read my Bible. I'll do these things. That's good. And he says, no, I really want your life. Well, I'm giving you, you know, two days a week and I'm giving you, you know, morning devotions and I'm giving you whatever else we're giving you. But when the time gets really tough and when the persecution really comes, will you still give to him? Or is that now that's enough? I didn't know it was going to cost that much. I didn't know it was going to cost maybe my faith or my life or my family's life. I I don't want to do that. And even today, there is persecution. Even today, people who call themselves followers of Christ or Christian give their lives for the Lord in different countries. And so It's not uncommon, and these words of Jesus echo to them as well. And to fall away means to not think it's worth your life. And in that, the words of John come to mind in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And so there seems to be this requirement of devotion to be a part of what God is doing. And if you are going to reject what God does, then Jesus says, if you do not acknowledge me before men, then my father will not, I will not acknowledge you before my father is in heaven. And so if this is too much for you, then maybe it's not for you. Seems to be kind of the idea that he's presenting here, which is a hard thing to embrace and fully understand. It doesn't mean that God doesn't 
have mercy. It doesn't mean that God doesn't, you know, know our weaknesses and our frailty. But there seems to be this understanding that if, if your life is changed by God, if he takes hold of your life, then he will hold on to your life throughout your entire life. Um, but that's a difficult thing to understand, knowing the people who have gone through persecution. We don't experience those kinds of persecution. He kind of goes on to illustrate what that persecution is going to look like in verse 2 when he says, they'll put you out of the synagogue. That was one of the things. This was a big deal. To us, it's like, oh, I'm going to kick you out of the church. It's like, okay, I'll go to another one. You know, I know people who do that. You know, well, you can't, you know, be a part of this church because of maybe how you're living or your beliefs are contrary. And so if someone says, you can't be here, that's okay, I can go find another church. The synagogue wasn't like that. This was very central to their community. Their life revolved about this. If you're getting kicked out of the synagogue, you're being ostracized. You're being labeled. You are now someone who cannot worship God because to worship God was to be a part of the synagogue in their minds, which is why Christianity spread outside of the synagogue, why they started meeting now on the first day of the week on Sunday instead of on Saturday. Because something new had begun, Sunday was going to symbolize the resurrection, and plus they were no longer accepted in the synagogue. And so really they got pushed out, but community is an important thing. And they needed community. And so they were going to be kicked out, and so Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be kicked out of your religious community, out of your faith community, out of your heritage, out of your historical community. And that was a big deal to them. Hearing this would be like, oh my gosh, that's a terrible thing. He goes on and he talks further. He says, in fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. That word for service is the same word that the priest performed when they would serve offerings to the Lord. They will think that they are offering God sacrifice when they kill you. Now think about that. That's kind of not a... People are going to think they're worshiping God when they kill you, which is exactly what Saul was doing, right? Saul of Tarsus was going out persecuting the Christians and he was doing God's service. Again, even in some extreme Islamic faiths, faiths, if you kill people, whether it's in Christian or Judaism, it's considered service to God. There's some extreme faiths out there, religious uh, people who, who think it's doing service to God. And so Jesus isn't pulling any punches here. Time's coming. I just want you to know about it so that you don't fall away, so that you don't leave your belief in God and in me. They're going to kick you out of the synagogues. They're going to think they're doing God a service when they take your life. Just want you to be known. Want you to know about it before it happens. Verse 3, they will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. And so I told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. The life we live for Christ is not the easiest way to go through life. But it is the highest road that we can take. 
And so Jesus, I'm telling you, so that when it comes, I warned you about it. This is not going to be easy. Now think about this. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't my phone. <laughs> think about this, how if you don't prepare for something that's difficult, you will most likely not complete it. Jesus gave other parables. A man's going to build something. He first counts the cost. Otherwise, if he starts to build it and then he runs out of material, people say, what a foolish person. He started something he couldn't finish. You know, during this construction work at Mexico, we got about halfway through, maybe a little bit more than halfway through, and we realized we don't have enough material. We don't have enough rock. We don't have enough sand. We don't have enough cement. And so we had to drive down to the local construction place, buy more cement. Then we saw, okay, we don't have enough rock. We don't have enough sand. We had to call them and say, okay, we need another you know, four meters of rock, four meters of sand, because we didn't have enough to finish the job. And if we didn't plan that, get that there in time, it wouldn't have been done. And so we had to, okay, now we don't have this much. We got to plan ahead. And if you don't plan the work, this was difficult work. That's why we got the young people to come so that they could keep up and do the labor. Because it was hard. I couldn't do it by myself. And so we had to plan to get enough people to be there. People who had strong, and everyone was worn out. I mean, everyone needed breaks because, man, it's hard lifting these 100-bag pounds of cement and then cutting them open and then lifting them up and dumping them in the mixer. It's a lot of work. And if you don't plan it, you won't finish the job. And Jesus is saying, if you don't know how hard this is going to be, you're not going to finish. And so I'm telling you ahead of time. But you see, something happens when you know that it's going to be difficult and it's still important to you and you still get the job done, then others actually are inspired by your commitment. Which is why the early church flourished. Because these people were willing to give their lives for this belief. In spite of the persecution, getting kicked out of the synagogues, being killed, having their lives and families disrupted, they still believed, they still cling to faith, and then they found that God was strengthening them through this, and people would see that. It's the same today. When people see commitment, it inspires them, even if it's not commitment to the right things. Even if it's a commitment to something that is wrong, if they see commitment, they're willing to follow because they're seeing someone committed, and that's something that people need. That inspires people. If you're willing to give your life for this, then I think I will too, because they need to give their lives to something. We're made to worship. We're made to be a part of community, and when we see something that inspires someone so much, it motivates us to want to be a part of that too. And so sometimes you'll read an article about someone who, you know, gives their life to this commune or maybe it's even to a radical form of Islam. And you think, man, why would they do that? Because they were inspired by someone who gave their life to that direction. 
And there's something about commitment that inspires us. And that's what stories are told about. The firemen who ran into the building when everyone were running out, they were so committed to this cause that it inspires us. No one writes stories about people that aren't really committed. Well, you know, Jimmy, he really gave his life for a couple of days and then he stopped because it was hard and he went home. That's not going to be in the movies, right? That's not going to be a story we tell. It's the person who sees through it. Sorry if your name is Jimmy. Didn't pick you. I always use the name Joe, but I didn't want Joe to get. Why do you always use my name? And so Jesus is warning them about what's going to happen. Remember that he warned you. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him, verse 5, who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? And so Jesus said, I I didn't tell you this at the beginning because I was with you. You had me. You didn't need to know about this. It's important to recognize those things. That Jesus didn't give them everything all at once. And he's going to say this again a little bit later. Now, are there any questions about just this portion and what we've been talking about? Yes. If you don't prepare your life now for what you're wanting to live for, then when the time comes, you won't. Be prepared. In other words, the only way to know, because none of us will know until the time comes, is to develop the life now so that if the time or situation would ever come, that we would be in a place, in a position to be able to continue living in that way. When they train people for the military, they train them to trust in their training so that when things start going crazy, they don't say, ah, freaking crawl up in a fetal position and just not function. The whole idea is when things get crazy, you can still function because you've prepared for it. Now, you're still scared to death. You still run if bombs are falling. You, you still react, but your training is supposed to help you move through that period. Well, I believe there's a life training with God. If you're living with God and he becomes a reality to you, the reality of who he is will take you through whatever difficulties you go through. It doesn't mean they'll be easy. It doesn't mean there won't be tears. It doesn't mean there won't be grief, but it means you will still have faith in God in spite of the things that happen in your life. So, And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. That's what he's going to conclude with. In the world, you will have these difficulties, the tribulation, but you can take courage. I've overcome the world. In other words, your faith in me is what you look forward to even when things are difficult here. And so if you have a faith in God that is a reality now, the odds are it'll be a reality tomorrow. And so whatever difficulties we go through, Maybe it's not, you know, someone's going to kill us, but maybe it is a financial strain. Maybe it's family difficulties. Maybe it's other trials or tribulations. Whatever you go through and how you go through those things are going to help you go through other things. If you can't go through those things, 
then the odds are you won't be able to go through something more. You see, and that's what the point is. Her faith at, up to that moment allowed that moment to move forward. Our faith up to those moments will determine how we move forward in that moment. No one knows exactly how we're going to behave tomorrow, but what we can do is live today so that when moments come, we are living in truth to what we believe. And that, you know, is our faith genuine? Because if we have a connection with God and a relationship with God, then as life moves forward, and and let's face it, all of us have lived long enough to know that life is tough. Life throws you some hard knocks, and there is no way to prepare for what tomorrow holds because we don't know what tomorrow holds. But we can live in a relationship with God today, and that relationship with God can help us tomorrow with whatever is there. And so if you have a genuine faith, then she could stand up at that moment and say, no, I am a believer, I am a Christian, and be willing to give her life there. Why? Because the faith was genuine, it was real. And as we're going to see, Jesus doesn't leave us as orphans. He gives us his spirit that is working in us, and so we need to move forward so we can get to that, because he goes right into that in verse 6. Rather, you are filled with grief because I said these things, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good. It's for your good. Why is it for our good that I'm going away? Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong and sin. He goes on. So it is for our good. It is for our good because the spirit of truth that John talked about in chapter 14, he says, you know him, he lives with you and will be in you. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. So the spirit was with them, but he was now going to be in them. And so God was going to bring us into closer relationship with him if Jesus goes to the cross, pays the penalty for our sin, raises again from the dead, ascends to the Father. That opens the door for now the Spirit to not just come alongside and be with us, but actually to be in us. And that is the promise of God to all of us. Jesus was limited. He could only be in one place at one time. He only knew what the Father revealed to him. So when the one woman touched him, he said, who touched me? He didn't know. He said, who touched me? There were things that Jesus was limited to purposefully. He became lower than the angels were told for the suffering of death. And so as Jesus empties himself of his right to act as God, takes on human flesh, becomes a man, then goes to the cross, dies for us. By him going through that, it enabled God now to work amongst all of us the same way that Jesus did with the disciples. Now could be done in a broader sense through the Spirit and the Spirit now being in Each of us. You see, this is where Jesus is pouring his life into the disciples and then to their followers and then to those who had fallen up to us. The purpose was so that they could do what he did. 
Remember, a disciple follows his rabbi, becomes like his rabbi, and does the things his rabbi does. Jesus poured his life into these disciples so that they could do the things that he did. And greater works, he said, you will do. Remember, we talked about that. What are the greater works? Well, it's going to be continuing in a broader sense the things that I did. And so the spirit now was going to come and dwell within us. And so now the idea is there's going to be a whole bunch more of Jesus's walking around doing things, his disciples, people who are like him doing the work that he did. He had to pave the way. He had to be the perfect son of God so that his sacrifice would be sufficient for us. But that paved the way so that the Spirit of God could now come and indwell each of us and be with us. And so it's good in that sense. I have to do this. And that Spirit, when he comes in us, is now going to help us. In verse 8 it says, he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin. And that word for prove, no one word really translates it well. It has kind of a couple of meanings. It means convince. It means to convict. It actually means to expose. It was kind of a used word used in cross-examination for a witnessing. You would cross-examine a witness someone until they could see or admit they were wrong. And so Jesus was going to convict, help the world see that they needed salvation. They needed forgiveness. They needed a savior that the Spirit was going to help people to understand that Jesus' death on the cross is significant. So that now when they look at the cross, they say, you know, why did he die? And they hear the gospel message, well, he died for our sin. He died for our inadequacies. He died for the brokenness of our life and our condition. They could say, I need that. I see the truth in that. He's exposing that. He's convicting that. They're aware of that need for sin. It has that idea, the force of an argument, which they hadn't yet understood. The cross was now going to force the argument. You are in desperate need of what God has to offer you through Jesus. The cross is God's explanation. It's his conviction. It's his exposing our need. And so the Spirit's going to expose these things, prove the world to be wrong in sin and in righteousness and in judgment. Prove that we need these things, and they're all in relationship to Jesus. About sin, because people do not believe in me, Remember, Jesus said, who has seen me has seen the Father. And we talked quite a bit about this, about how Jesus is the fullest and the clearest revelation of who God is. And to reject who Jesus really is and what he has done is rejecting God. I say who he really is, is because there's a lot of people who have a false conception of who he is. And so that is why we he convicts us about sin, because... They don't believe in him. A conviction of righteousness. This word only appears actually here in John's gospel. It is the quality or moral character which was perfectly exhibited in every, every motive and act that Jesus did. And so now he's convicting us of righteousness, about righteousness, because we see what it is like in Jesus to live the right way. In every way, 
not just in the actions that he did, but in the attitude of what he did. I find myself at times challenged by how I'm going to respond to certain things. Someone does something and it bothers me and so I want to talk about it to someone. And then I I find this conviction like, is that the right thing to do? Or to see someone and to see their weaknesses. You know, that guy, man, he's got some problems. Yeah, he's involved with this and he's involved with that. And he really doesn't think very clearly. You know, he's got a history of this and history of that. And then I think of Jesus and how he treated people. And it doesn't seem to matter who the person was. Jesus seems to respect people. And so now I am convicted by righteousness because of the way Jesus lived right. And it's the example for me of how I should live. Because we all tend to live on these layers. Well, I'm better than so-and-so because look at how messed up they are. You know, they're involved with drugs and they're involved with pornography and they're involved with this. And so if we can be better than those things, well, then I feel better about myself. But the righteous attitude is to see everyone as more important than ourself. And that's Jesus' attitude. If I, your Lord, wash your feet, I'm giving you an example. This is the right way to live. And so it's not condemning, it's just showing us a standard that we are supposed to live up to. And so that idea of about righteous, and he's going to the Father, and we won't see him any longer, about judgment because the prince of this world... Now, this is more than just Satan. This is the embodiment of evil. Jesus talked about that in John 8 regarding the Pharisees. And you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out his desires. And so this is, you know, the prince of this world has to do with that evil presence that is there because he now stands condemned. All these have to do with how Jesus exposed the reality of these things and his life, how they dealt with them. And so the idea of him sending an advocate who's going to come alongside us and he's going to reveal the truth about sin, about how to live right, and about the judgment that God has brought through the person of Jesus. The Spirit is the one who's going to help in all these things. So going back to how will I live if, I'm in the circumstances. What's the right thing to do? Well, the Spirit of God is going to inform us what the right thing to do is. Will I have the resolve to do the right thing? Well, am I going to, between now and whatever that time comes, start exercising that right thing? When you find out that someone has fallen into a a sin, Let's say adultery. You find out that someone has committed adultery. If you go back, you will see that there are steps where that weakness showed up in their life and how they dealt with it wasn't the right way. In other words, there wasn't an exercising of righteousness all along these paths so that when the opportunity came, the person gave in. 
Same thing's true with drugs. You know, if a person all of a sudden starts, okay, I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, start smoking meth. Well, it didn't just happen. They didn't just wake up this morning and say, you know what? I think I'll start smoking meth. Now, there's probably things that led up to that. There's probably relationships that they developed with people. There were probably compromises that they gave in in certain areas. And then when the opportunity came, they kind of paved the way. We can pave the way to doing things of destruction, but we can also pave the way to doing things that are going to be the right way. In fact, turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. I wasn't planning on going here, but this is where we are. In Galatians chapter 6, let's see, starting at verse... Seven, Paul writes and he says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to the, to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to the spirit, the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good at the proper time. We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, we have. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So many times when we hear this, don't be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows, we think of it in the negative. You do bad things, bad things are going to happen to you. But the whole point of Paul's writing here isn't that if you do bad things, you're going to get bad things in return. The whole point was actually the opposite was if you will invest in good things, monetarily or in whatever ways, then you will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so he tells us, let us not become weary in doing what? Bad? No, good. Why? For in the proper time you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. And, and so if we will invest in what is good, in time we're going to reap the harvest of life. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good. So instead of being fearful, I don't want to be a meth head. I don't want to commit adultery. You don't have to. You can actually start doing good now so that if the time comes of temptation, you're already reaping a harvest of life. Why? Because you're doing good. You're investing your life in things that are good and you will get the return of that investment. And it's important that we see that those times that are going to come, whatever they look like, the hard times that lie in each of our future, because Jesus said they're going to come. Oh no, what's going to happen? How, how do I plan for that time that's going to come? Well, you start by living now, with God now, by investing in what is good now. Because if you put a little in this direction today, it's going to produce something good for you tomorrow. And it's going to help develop the life that you need for whatever the future holds. And it's important to understand that. I, I just did training for a dog, a Rottweiler, that was aggressive towards people. 
and it snapped at a few people and was going after some dogs. And so I come in the house and the dog's eyeballing me, you know, I was like, who are you in my house? You know, and I start talking to the people and telling them, you know, I don't just fix the dog from snapping at people. We need to change the dynamics of this household. Right now, the dog thinks that it's his house and actually it was a her, it's her house. And so she needs to be protective because she doesn't see you as being protective. If you want to stop the dog from lunging after people on bikes, we have to change how the dog sees you and its dynamics in this house. Because if we go for a walk right now and a guy on a bike rides by, the dog's going to go after the guy on the bike and I can correct the dog, but it's still going to go after the guy on the bike until we change her thinking about who's in charge. And so we did a few things in the household and started getting the dog to say, okay, there's a new sheriff in town. Okay, you're, you're not who you think you are in this household. That job belongs to these people. And so we spent probably a good two hours in the house dealing with the dog and its relationship with the people. And then we went out for a walk. And the lady was freaked out. Oh, no, no, it's going to bite someone. I said, no, you gotta, you got to be in charge. If the dog sees that you're not in charge, then it's going to think, well, if she's not in charge, I need to be. And so convincing her this is how it's going to work, it's going to work, me being there, her husband being there, we started going for a walk, and I started telling her, okay, here comes a person on the bike, relax, leave the leash loose, because she automatically started, oh, no, it's going to happen. I said, no, relax the leash, you're in charge. Okay, if the dog starts focusing towards a person, we'll give it a correction. But in the meantime, you're in control. Person drives by on the bike, dog's fine. That's a miracle, that's a miracle. Yes, thank you, thank you. (laughs) What happened? Well, we changed the dynamics and the relationship in the house and it started affecting other areas of the life. The same thing is true with us in our lives. If we change our relationship so that God becomes the important thing. And so we start living as if God is the most important thing. Then what we'll find is that whenever times come, we'll be ready for those times because we've invested in them. And so Jesus you know, is telling us that this is going to happen, that the Spirit is going to be with us, and that we will have the opportunity to live as he lived. He, that's why he's warning us. Because the prince of this world stands condemned already. How does he stand condemned? Because of what I've done. Well, that's what you did. What about me? Well, now you are in me, and I'm going to give my spirit to you. And so now this promise that I'm giving is yours. And so Jesus is preparing them for the future. And he's preparing them not by removing the future from them, but telling them who they are in the future that is to come. Does that make sense? You are now my disciples. God is going to give you, in fact, it's good that I leave so the Spirit can come, and he is going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, because I am going to be the example of the need for salvation of righteousness because I'm the example of living right, of judgment because I am going to put the final judgment down. So now that that's accomplished, you can now go on and live. And verse 12 says, I have much more to say, more than you can bear now. Man, imagine that. 
I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. What more is there? You just told us you're leaving. You're telling us there's going to be kicked out of the synagogues, put to death and think they're doing God's service. And you have more to tell us that we can't bear? That'd be, man, that'd be depressing. You know, it's only possible to tell a man or a woman as much as they can understand. You can only give someone so much information. If you try and give them too much information, you end up losing everything. You guys who are teachers know that if you're going to start teaching in geometry, you don't start at higher levels. You start with some basic concepts. If you're going to teach someone in music, you don't teach them all kinds of theory. You start with the basic principles so that they can learn and get to that place. And Jesus is doing the same thing. I'm going to help you guys. I have a lot to tell you. I've been telling you over the last three years, and now I've given you this chunk of information, because now you can handle this, and I want you to be prepared for that. There is more I can't tell you now, but, verse 13, when when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so Jesus is now saying, I can only take you so far. The spirit, he will take you further. In fact, that word guide literally means to guide or to lead along a path. I can take you here, but the spirit, his job will be to take you along this path into all the truth. And this truth about what God has revealed through Jesus as following verses are going to kind of tell us. Jesus is not just a figure in a book that we read. He is a living person. And in him, God's revelation goes on. And that revelation now is going to go on through his disciples. And so Jesus isn't starting with the difficult things. He's starting with some basic things. And he's going to lead them further along. Verse 14 says, he, the spirit, notice it's he, that it's giving him a person. It's not when it, it's when he, the spirit comes, when he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. To you. Now, this is kind of like, huh? Who? who what? 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 We're talking about Father. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Spirit. Who's? It's like they're all kind of interchangeable. The Father has revealed everything to Jesus. Now, Jesus is sending us the Spirit so that He can disclose to us all things that the Father has given to Him. There's a clear. It's like, I think so. What, what's going on here? Well, that's why it's God showing up in the three persons. God revealing himself through Jesus, Jesus now giving us the spirit that will help us to live like Jesus lived in the world that we're in. And so, bless you, he's giving us this kind of disclosure. The spirit is going to come, he is going to lead you in the way and in all truth. We've covered a lot of verses. Any questions rise up in some of the things that we've talked about here? Yep, definitely trusting in him. (laughs) Well, prayer could be preparation, just like we were talking about. 
It can be that exercising in a spiritual element, you know, trusting God. You know, I don't think Jesus wanted the disciples to worry about the future and all that was going to come. In fact, he says not to. But preparing for something has to do with today. You can't prepare for tomorrow tomorrow. You prepare for tomorrow today. And so what's going to come, you need to be aware of it so that today you can start doing the things that will help you live that tomorrow. And again, as we see the disciples' lives, you know, as we're going to finish up here, you know, they say, okay, I I understand. We know what you're talking about. Really? Because you guys are going to scatter. Peter's going to deny him three times. But then Peter is going to do a whole lot, be persecuted and rejoice and be overwhelming to what these things are. Why? Because he started connecting to the living God. He saw Jesus was alive. He was filled with his spirit. His spirit came with him. He started living as Jesus lived and took the mantle that Christ handed to them and to us and as he started living that life, then when those events came, they weren't the same kind of, it's, it's almost like it's a different person. The Peter who denies the Lord and the Peter who gets beaten and counts it wor- you know, privileged to be worthy to be beaten for the Lord, it seems like two different people. What's the difference? It was God's spirit in him, the relationship that he now held with God himself because of Jesus. That's all transpiring through this. And so, it's trying, oh man, is it really 8.30? Wow, okay. All right. Yeah. All that Jesus, verse 15, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus is giving to us the Spirit so that we can now live like he did. That is the importance of the Spirit's job. It isn't to make us do special things. It's to help us live as Jesus did. The Spirit only testified of Jesus. The Spirit didn't testify of itself, himself. Didn't testify that here I am, I'm going to do these miraculous things. Everything that the Spirit did was to help us represent Jesus more effectively. And the rest of the chapter kind of tells us that a little bit more. But we didn't get there today. So, sorry, it took longer than I thought. Any, <laughs> any other questions or thoughts on this? No? Come on, you guys. I know some of you came afterwards and said, I have a question. You didn't. We could have all... Okay. Well, we can continue with dialogue later, but let's pray. Father, I do, uh, again, ask that you would help us understand the importance, Lord, of why your spirit needed to come and, and why you needed to leave the way you did and how that opened and prepared the way for your spirit to come and now 
help us take, in a sense, your place as lights in this world, as cities that can't be hid, as an example to all men who you are. And just as the Spirit does not testify of himself, we don't testify of ourselves. This isn't anything that we boast in. Lord, what we boast in is you. What we are here for is to honor you, to help people see you. And that is why you have given us your spirit, so that we can do that effectively. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these things and to put them into practice, Lord, so that you can be seen in our lives and in the lives of those who we love as we exemplify these things. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.